Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Timothy Hallinan's mysteries have made numerous best top 10 lists for their imaginative verve and humour, and his latest release, Night Town, number seven in the Junior Bender series, is no exception. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Tim talks about how an LA burglar came to star in a series which seems to prove that bad guys really do have the most fun, and why he loves writing even more than working with stars like Catherine Hepburn and Sir Laurence Olivier. But before we talk to Tim, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Tim's books and website, as well as information about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Tim. Hello there, Tim, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, and it's a real pleasure to be here. Now, Tim, before we even dive into the questions, I know that you've just had a week away at Joshua's Tree having a sort of personal-style writing retreat. That seems to me totally romantic. I just love the idea of doing that. How did that week go? It went amazingly well. Um, I, I live a fiction in which I will never complete the book I'm working on, even though I've written 21 or 22 of them. And when I get completely blocked. I go up there and I walk around in the desert for two or three days and everything just melts. And there I am again with the story and the characters. And it worked this time yet again for probably the 20th time. Oh, that's just wonderful. Is there a certain point in a book where you get stuck every time or is it different with each book? I get stuck over and over again, but usually the big crisis is about a third of the way in. Um, I've actually thrown out half a dozen books because I just couldn't push past the block. Ah, that's interesting. Wow. Well, look, beginning at the beginning, going right back to the beginning of those 20 books, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction? And if there was, was there some sort of catalyst for it? Uh, It was actually a twice upon a time um, Ah. situation. We moved all the time when I was a kid, when I was a kid. I lived in 22 houses by the time I was 18 years old. And what that meant was I had no ongoing friendships. I mean, you could move six blocks, you're in a different school. For a kid, it might as well be a different planet. So what I did was I read. I read all the time. And when I was 11, I read The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. And I thought, I understand how this story works. Something's secret, and somebody has to figure out what it is. And something ha- somebody has to restore order. And about a year and a half after that, in my family's house in Tarzana, <laughs> on the, the old estate of Edgar Rice Burroughs, I read Gone with the Wind. And for the first time in my life, I read characters who were more real to me than the people with whom I lived. In fact, my mother said that she had to come up sometimes and call me two or three times and then actually literally put her hand over the page of the book before I could tune into her. 
So by the time I was maybe 13, I understood that there was a kind of story I wanted to tell. And I understood that the most important thing about any story was the characters. And that was sort of the basis on which everything grew. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned that you sort of had a twice uh, a twice revelation experience. So that was how you got to really decide you were going to be a writer. How did you actually then carry it out? You had a couple of false starts, did you, or a couple of starts? Well, I had a, I accidentally created a career that was really interesting. Um, out of college, I went into public relations, which didn't interest me at all, but we were doing television public relations, and my partner and I decided one day that we would not represent ever again any show we wouldn't watch. And all of a sudden, we had everything that was good on television. And what's more, we had art exhibitions. We did the King Tut exhibition. We figured all of that stuff out. We represented public television. Um, I represented Katherine Hepburn for her first television show ever. We, I was living in New York, London, and Los Angeles, and it was a really good job. And for all the time that I was doing that, I sat down once in a while and I wrote. Um, and in fact, finally, I decided that I was going to write a book as well as working 60 hours a week, which is what I was working. And I did. I wrote the first book I ever finished, which was a terrible book with a great title, uh, the Wrong End of the Rainbow, which I'm going to use again right now, by the way, in, in, a, in a book I'm working on now. Um, and I put it in a drawer. And at a certain point around 1990, I decided I was going to write, period. Um, and I wrote the very first Simeon Grist to be published um, and sent it off. And within about 10 days, I had a three-book contract with William Morrow. Um, and from then on, for the next two or three years, I wrote in my spare time, and then I closed everything down and wrote full-time. Fantastic. What, what It sounds like a, an amazing, almost a fantasy life that you had. I mean, fantastic. I'm so, it was wonderful. I was working with some of the great artists of the world. We represented the, the New York Philharmonic. We rep represented most of the major art museums in the country. We represented public television. Um, and it was, and we got into a point where we were no longer a public relations firm. We were a crossroads where companies that had lots of money and wanted to do something good, and I don't mean audience good, but I mean something good good, would come and ask us if we knew of anything that might work for them. And in many cases, um, I put major American companies into public broadcasting. In some cases, I literally wrote the internal uh, corporate white paper that justified their moving into public television. Um, and of course, I worked with everybody in the world. I worked with Laurence Olivier. I worked with Catherine Hepburn. I mean, it was a great job, but it wasn't writing. Yeah, yeah. Now, you have, in this last um, 20 years or so, written thrillers and mysteries in three different <laughs> series. But you've got a new book out next month. And so we'd really like to look at the certifiably fresh, the latest Junior Bender mystery. Sure. Junior is an unusual protagonist because he's a burglar and one close to your heart, I suspect. How did the idea of a protagonist who's a burglar come about? Well, it was I was writing one of the Paul Grafferty Bangkok books and I was having a rough time and I kept getting this voice in my ear that wanted to tell me a story. And the story was about a crook and a koala bear. And the, <laughs> the crook 
and his wife had been given a koala bear and they fell in love with it. It was, it was their child. It was everything. And it was stolen. And it broke the crook's wife's heart. So he went to the guy he knew who could figure out who stole the koala bear. And that turned out to be Junior. And the crook is a guy named Louis the Lost, who's in all the books now. But I came at Junior that way, and I thought, a private eye who is a, a, a burglar who's a private eye for crooks is a really interesting idea. Um, and, of course, there have been lots of crooks who were heroes of books all the way back to the the, uh, oh, the, the sorry. The Chandler days. Or- yeah, but even, even before that, um, there was a – there was a series about a guy who was a cracksman, which is also a burglar, and he solved crimes from time to time. Um, a couple of people have written books about crooks um, who, who are the, the protagonists, but I think Junior is the only actual detective who's a crook. Yeah. And of course, the good thing, of course, the good thing about it is that he has a kind of insight into the mentality of people on that side of the law that private eyes who aren't crooks don't have you know i mean there is friends there is enemies um so he's living in that world and it's open to him in a way that it isn't it never was to, for example to my original private eye simeon grist he never really understood them junior understands what's going on on that side of the fence sure um but he he's got a, he's got his own internal moral compass as well and there are cases that he tries to refuse. I mean, the latest book, Night Town, he finds mm-hmm. himself embroiled in a case that he, at the beginning anyway, would dearly like to get get out of if he could. What? How do you decide which ones he's going to, well, how does he decide which ones he's going to take and which ones he's going to try and walk away from? Uh, first of all, he has two moral codes. The one, one he has as a burglar was instilled in him by the guy who trained him. Um, his, his, the man who essentially came along and changed his life. And that is when you go into a house, look for the best thing they own and don't take it. And that will allow you to sleep while you're a burglar. And he's always lived by that. But the other thing about why he doesn't take some cases has actually nothing to do with the moral code. He, he would turn them all down if he could, because when he's in that situation, He's looking for somebody who will kill him if they find out he's looking for them. And he's working for somebody who will kill him if he doesn't figure out who it is. So (laughs) part of the game of the book, in addition to solving crime, is he's walking a very fine line between his client and whoever committed the crime. Um, So he turns down as many as he can because they're just too dangerous. Yeah, yeah. You get the sense that you've really enjoyed creating this character who thumbs his nose at the normal world. And I wondered if there was ever a fantasy of yours that you'd like to be that kind of outsider. It's funny because the thing that I love best about the juniors, aside from a handful of the characters who are in every single book, is thinking up the crimes. Um, And in the very first book, which is called Crashed, he breaks into a house by taking a, a delivery truck with an empty refrigerator carton in it and wheeling it up to the front door and putting it in the front of the door. And then he goes around and the, car, the carton's been cut open in the middle and he can kneel down in the, tel- in the refrigerator carton and work for an hour if he has to, opening the lock. And I thought, this is brilliant. <laughs> Nobody's. And three days after that book came out, I got a call from the police in the northern San Fernando Valley saying, how do you know about the refrigerator burglaries? 
And I said, I made it up. And he said, well, we'd like you to come down. We'd like to talk to you. So I figured, okay. And I went down. And we actually had a great time. I mean, I showed him the second book that I was working on. Um, and in fact, much later, I called this same cop and I said, is there a burglar I could talk to? And he said, oh, that's kind of an unusual request. <laughs> but, but he, in fact, did set me up to talk to a guy um, who had stolen some emeralds, which a, a variant of that is in Nighttown. Um, it's, it's not the main crime, but, and in, in the book, I believe they're pearls, but, uh, anyway, yeah, it's the best thing for me, first of all, is that crooks don't have to play fair. They don't have to be politically correct. They don't have to be careful about people's feelings. Junior is, but not always. Worst comes to worst, you pull out your gun and you plug somebody. So that's, that's fun. Anybody who writes thrillers knows that writing the crook there's a special sizzle that goes to with it, a kind of energy. Uh, and the second thing, of course, is that I'm figuring out all these puzzles and how to get into houses and how to get out of houses and all the rest of that. Um, and one more thing. Um, I have an endless store of useless knowledge. I've read everything in the world and somewhere it's all stored away in, in, this, in an attic in my head. And when I'm writing, there's a little guy who's up there flipping through all that stuff. And when he holds something up, I pay attention to him. And in, in Nighttown, there's a very important plot thing that has to do with the spiritualist movement ah. that, that came into being at the middle of the 19th century and boomed after World War I uh, when everybody was bereaved. And it was about the people that we had lost, not really being lost, but actually being among us and all the rest of that. And I know all of that because um, – I had read it at some point, and I'm in this spooky old mansion, and I think the picture on the wall is a spirit picture. It's a phony that was made in the 19th century of somebody who just lost a loved one, and transparent behind him or her is that loved one. And people thought it was real. It's just a, it's just a cheap double exposure, but nobody knew how photography worked in those days. And that was actually a key to the development of the whole book. That picture became really the launching pad for the solution of the crime. Yeah, I was fascinated by that because I didn't know about that spiritualist um, picture, spirit picture thing myself at all. Um, I, I actually wondered, this is a little bit of an aside, but I wondered if its popularity might have been partly propelled by the huge number of personal losses that there were associated with the Civil War and people wanting to just, you know, contact their loved one and make sure that they were okay or wanting to believe that because I think the Ouija board thing grew at that time too as well, didn't it? But that is a bit of an aside, I must admit. That's all right. Uh, the, the Civil War was was earlier than this. The, the spiritualist movement, the first mediums in the world, people who talk to the dead for you, were a pair of sisters named Fox who lived in upstate New York and who had double-jointed toes. And they could pop their toes <laughs> under the table to make a whole bunch of percussive noises. And you would come and ask your question of your loved one, and here'd go this tom-tom or whatever it was, and they would translate They would, they would translate it for you. They'd explain it to you. Out of that came the, mo came the medium movement, and out of the medium movement came spiritualism, which was helped along enormously by the millions of people who died in World War One, and the tens of millions of people who died in the uh, the whatever the hell flu it was 
that had oh, happened. Oh, yeah, Spanish flu, Spanish flu. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So yeah. that in, a, in the case, case of about five years, about 15 or 20 million people died and everybody was bereaved. And yeah. spiritualism was perfect for that. One yeah. of the funny things about spiritualism is that the public sides, pro and con, the con side, the guy who said spiritualism is a fraud, was Houdini, the magician, who you would think would be on the on the pro side. And the person who said, no, spiritualism is the answer to everything, was Arthur Conan Doyle, who created the most logical detective in the world. Um, and that just knocks me out, that those yeah. guys were... Then, yeah. and they brought they brought to close an, a lifelong friendship. They wound up not speaking for about 30 years because of this. Look, you have the most fascinating information. You really do. <laughs> well, that, that kind of thing moves a story along in a really interesting way, I think. Um, the, 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 the point, the trick is to use it in a way so that you don't leave out the people who don't know it already. You have to explain it without slowing the story down. Sure. And that really leads nicely into talking about your first mystery series featuring an, a rather over-educated private eye named Simeon Grist. Now, I, I really smiled to myself when I saw that because it's even obvious in um, the junior books that you've got a tremendous amount of really interesting esoteric knowledge there. So Simeon was probably where that all first started to find a home, was it? Yeah. Uh, when I started writing Simeon, I based it partly on me because I had stayed in college as long as possible. I knew how they graded you in college, but I didn't know how they graded you outside it. So I stayed and I got a whole bunch of absolutely useless degrees. And Simeon did exactly the same thing. And so when I wrote Simeon, I was very consciously setting up a character in which random knowledge could sometimes be very useful. Um, I'm fond of those books. I was sort of learning how to write at the time that I wrote them. I was learning what a novel really was. Uh, I wasn't actually ready for that three-book contract that came when I wrote the first Simeon that was published. Um, but, but I don't regret it. I mean, after the sixth Simeon came out and sank like a stone, I actually quit writing for about eight or nine years and made more money and then came back to writing and, and started writing the Bangkok books. Yes, and that's lovely that we now morph into the poke rabbity thrillers because they were thrillers rather than mysteries and they were set in Thailand. So that was quite a, a big jump from what you had been doing. I read somewhere that you basically took time out from your full-time job to fly to Thailand and write that book, Everything But the Squeal, the first in that series. Is is that right? Is, is that Have I got the right idea there? Yeah, Um it sounds it sounds more purposeful than it was. I knew I needed to get time to write, uh, and I had built a fence around six weeks that I thought I was going to spend in Japan. I had been in Japan with the L.A. Philharmonic on the first tour ever of Japan by a Western Symphony Orchestra. And one of the most moving experiences of my life was the the uh, the concert in Hiroshima. Um, yeah, the, the people had come in, and there was this big empty square. In the middle of the seats, the lights went to half, and the survivors came down the aisle. And they were lame, and they were burned, and excuse me. Yes, yes. One of the, one yes. Of the most moving, one of the most moving moments of my life. And they had been scorned after the war. People thought they were contagious, but when they came down that night, the entire audience rose and applauded them. And um, the conductor of the orchestra walked off stage because he was crying. Um, anyway, 
I was going to stay. I was going to stay in Japan and write it, but it was freezing. So I called my travel agent. This is how long ago it was. There was a travel agent, and I said, "Send me any place in Asia that's warm where I don't need a visa." And she said, "Thailand." And I said, "Fine." So I got off the plane in Bangkok. It's ninety-three degrees. I'm wearing a puffy coat with earmuffs. And I'm halfway across the airport, and I see the immigration guys pointing at me and falling off their chairs, laughing. <laughs> and and I had never known that immigration guys were able to laugh before. I mean, <laughs> I I didn't know they had that gene. And uh, I thought maybe I'm going to like it here, and I did. I loved it. So um, I wrote the fir- most of the first book sitting. Oh, and this is this is also kind of funny. My travel agent, a very nice uh, young woman with a relatively restrictive frame of reference, thought, I can't just put him anywhere in Thailand. It's the city, it's the it's Sin Central for the world. So she booked me into a Ramada hotel, thinking nothing could be safer than a Ramada. And it was right at the end of Pat Pong Road. I woke up at five o'clock in the evening, having slept straight through the day, walked out, and here's all this neon and all these suspiciously friendly women waving me into these bars. And I mean... Seriously, my very first night in Thailand, this is what I saw. So I wrote the books. I wrote the first book in a coffee shop on Batpong Road in the daytime. And one thing that happened after, on the third or the fourth day, is I became aware that someone, they saved me a window seat. They would take a tail by the window and they'd put all the extra napkins and serving stuff on it. And when I came in, they'd clear it all off and I'd go sit there because that's the way the ties are nicest people on earth. And I'm sitting there working and I become aware I'm being looked at. And on the other side of the window is an absolutely filthy little girl, maybe seven or eight years old, whose hair is all matted. And she's got a box hanging around her her neck. that has got chewing gum in it. And it's hanging from a leather strap that's against her neck. Um, And I look at her and she runs. And about two days later, she's back. And I look at her and she runs. When she comes back the third time, I realized she's not interested in me at all. It's the screen on the computer. She's having the kid's screen reaction. And about the fifth time I waved her in, I set up the game, the only game on the computer, pinball, showed her how to work the paddles, told the waitress to give her anything she wanted, and went for a walk. And I came back about 45 minutes later, and the booth was empty. In the middle of my plate was a stack of chewing gum. And there was an astronomical pinball score on the machine. She was in the, like the trillions. Um, and I met her like that for three or four years in Thailand. And her name was actually Meow, which is the name of the little girl in the books. And then she disappeared and nobody would tell me where she went, but I know where she went. She was absorbed into the sex trade. Um, and in the, in the novels, I did the thing that I couldn't do in real life, which is to say that I adopted her. Yeah. fictionally yeah. at least. Yeah, yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, she's the center of that whole series. She's the most interesting character in the whole series. And you've mentioned that uh, that it is an, uh, both a thriller and a, a family drama, an ongoing mm-hmm. family drama, mm-hmm. um, and that it has developed, that family drama side of it has developed its own following. Do you think it's because of that character? You know, when I wrote it, I, before I had only written books with adults in them, And a very funny thing happens to time when you have a child in a book. Mm. Six months means nothing to an adult, but to a child, it's a half a lifetime. 
And she started at seven in the books, and she's now either 14 or 15 since nobody actually knows what her birthday is. And yes. she's a completely different human being. Yeah. I mean, she, she's been in a good school for six and a half years. She's become an actress at the school. She's the star of the school plays. Um, and still underneath it, she's this filthy little street kid. She cannot lose that. And in the book I'm writing right now, which is called Street Music, she has just won the part that she thinks she was born to play, which is Eliza in Pygmalion, also a.k.a. My Fair Lady, the street girl who's turned into a fine lady. Yeah. And, and when I tell you that at the beginning, it was a fight to get her to wash her hair in the, in the earliest books. Now, and, and her idea of a good time was to go into a room and line up her pairs of shoes because she couldn't believe she had three pairs of shoes. And now she's mastering Cockney. You know, I mean, that's enough to keep me writing all in itself. And I've decided a long, I decided a long time ago that when she's 19 and she moves out and Polk and Rose are all alone drifting around in this apartment they always it always felt so small and all of a sudden it feels enormous i think that's the end of the series i think when she's gone it's the end of the series too yeah 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 look to moving on from talking about the specific books to a slightly mm -hmm. wider view of your career um is there one thing you've done more than any other that you feel has been the secret to your longevity um if i have longevity which i'm not sure i do uh, I mean, I continue to be published, but I've never sold a gazillion books. Um, I think it's because the only thing I really care about is characters. Yeah. A mystery, a mystery is a great plot device because what it does is it creates a stressful situation that stretches characters out to the point where they're almost transparent and, they, and their real character is revealed. And that's what's interesting about a thriller to me is that you find out gradually – Who's really okay and who's really not, um, and and that's all I really care about is characters. Um, the, the, I don't have any idea what I'm going to write when I write it. I knew that I knew in this book, the one I'm writing right now, that Meow was going to be playing Eliza, and I knew it was going to end in a really horrific upset, at least three quarters of the way through the book. And that's all I knew when I started Night Town. What I knew was that Junior was fond of the dark. He thinks of it as his portable zip code because he's a burglar and he does everything in the dark. And I wanted to put him someplace that was too dark even for him. And that's what I knew. <laughs> yeah. So I made up Horton House, this, this abandoned uh, mansion that's going to be, that's gonna be you know, bulldozed in four days and which just bristles with, with animosity and, and, and venom and hatred. Um, and out of that comes the whole story. And that's the way I always work. I have either a feeling, the way a character would feel inside at something, or a sense that if I take these three people, they're like marbles, and I think about this, this basic idea and I drop them on the desk, will they roll in an interesting manner? And if they do, if it looks good to me, I follow them. And the whole book comes out of that. I have no plot outline. I don't know who the villain's going to be. I don't know anything. I'm there with the characters in real time, which is one of the reasons that when I break down, like I did and have to, just, just went to Joshua Tree, I don't really have any place to go because it's not like I've got notes or an outline or anything. I've just got a feeling and I'm writing the feeling until the book is over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Look, this series is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and it's partly predicated on that idea of people liking to read series books, which obviously you mm-hmm. do very well, and also that um, instant gratification thing that if they finish a book at midnight, they can easily just go online and get the next one. It's a kind of like mm-hmm. the Netflix of reading. I don't know whether you've ever read that way yourself. You certainly obviously have been a bookworm in the past, but who would you recommend to your readers as other people that are, are worth following? And and is, would you describe that as a binge read? Um, I'm not personally much of a binge reader. Almost the only uh, crime fiction I've ever binge read, and I do it every eight or 10 years, uh, is Nero Wolf. There's uh-huh. something about that brownstone that's just perfectly, it's like it's in amber. It's perfect. And they all just sit absolutely still there until you you walk in and then everything comes to life. And I do, I read those eight, every eight or 10 years. Right now, I think we're in a golden age of crime fiction. I don't think it's ever been much better than it is today. Yes. And, you know, I could name a dozen writers whose work I love. Not all of them sell a lot. I mean, Lisa Brackman, who just wrote an astonishing book about a woman who's targeted by a bunch of frustrated males on the Internet. Um, a brand new idea. You know, these incels, these involuntary celibates who, who get together and just essentially harass women. And she's written a book about a woman who's the target of that. And it's, it's called Black Swan Rising. And it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Almost anything Lou Burney writes. There, there are a lot of people whose work I really love. The books that I read over and over again don't tend to be crime fiction. Um, Anthony Powell's 12 novel set, A Dance to the Music of Time, I've read that five times in my life, oh, and it's different every time I read it. Yes, yeah. Um, and, and so I'm, you know, and also I read a huge amount of nonfiction. But I don't think, you know, I mean, there's a woman named Sujata Massey who has just written a book about India called The Widows of Malabar Hill. And it's about four women who are kept behind the screen. They're Muslims, and they're not allowed outside at all. And their husband has died. And the brother-in-law is probably cheating them out of everything. And the first female attorney in all of India is assigned to make the notes to, to let the male decide whether to intrude, whether to intrude or not. And she's based on, a, on the real first uh, female Indian lawyer. And it's a wonderful book. I mean, it takes you into a world that you that I knew nothing at all about. Sujana Massey, she's terrific. A lot of the people I read right now are women. That's great. Look, I didn't mention at the beginning, but we will have links in the show notes to all of these books that you mentioned so that if people listening want to follow them up, it's easy for them to do so. Great. Well, the new Lou Burney is called November Road, uh-huh. I, I believe, and it's sensational. It's about the Kennedy administration, the Kennedy assassination, and it's it's sensational. That sounds just like the sort of thing I love, to be honest. I, I love the thing, that a mixture of fiction and fact. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, mm-hmm. yeah. And he's really good. I mean, he, he, he started writing two, uh, he wrote two very funny crime novels, and then he wrote The Long and Far Away Gone, which is just marvelous, a completely different book. And now this is a third completely different kind of book for him. He's really good and he's disgustingly young. <laughs> That's lovely. That's great. <laughs> Look, circling around from the beginning to the end, because we are starting to come to run out of time. Okay. At this stage in your career, if you were setting out all over again right now, would you do it the same way or would you try and do it differently? I would have started writing at 20. 
Uh-huh. And I would have and I would have done nothing but right to the extent that that was possible. I feel like I've, am, I have not benefited from the late start, although I've had some wonderful experiences, some of which finds it, finds their way into my writing. But I would be a much better writer if I had written 25 books more than I have. <laughs> 20 books sounds pretty amazing to me, I must say. <laughs> Look, what is next for Timothy the writer? What projects do you have under development? Well, at the moment, I'm writing Night Music, which is the the, the Bangkok book that I told you about, yes. um, in which one of the characters is a homeless woman, um, and she's very interesting to write. Uh, I have a book, a series that I'm starting to work on right now um, that takes place in Hollywood in 1931, which is the year after... Sound came in, and essentially, for the first time in history, a mature art form, silent pictures, was simply balled up and thrown away like a piece of paper. And people got killed. People killed themselves. I mean, it, it was a miserable time uh, because sound just destroyed silence. And my heroine is a, is a chorus girl in the Busby Berkeley movies, which actually saved Warner Brothers' butt. Um, and... Anybody says anything in front of a chorus girl in 1931 because they're barely human as far as the men who run the studios are concerned. And yet she is always the smartest person in the room. And she will solve a mystery, uh, a murder mystery in the first book, which is called The Wrong End of the Rainbow. So I'm using that title. It is a gorgeous about, title. It is. Yeah, yeah, you know, all these all these girls from all over America went to Hollywood to become stars, all of them, thousands and thousands of them. And there was a right that they had. They took with them packets of wildflower seeds. And when the train crossed the border into California, they went to the caboose and they threw out wildflower seeds. And for years, there were 10 or 15 stretch miles of on either side of the tracks that were just a forest of wildflowers. And all those hopeful girls, you know, eight or nine became stars. The rest of them were treated like dirt or went home with their hearts broken or whatever. Um, and that interests me a lot. Um, it interests me a lot. Um, and this young woman who refers to herself as an unknown who from Kalamazoo um, is, is a character that I'm really having a good time writing. So that'll probably be a series. Um, and I've just finished a book called Mrs. Archuleta and Magic, which is about uh, a little girl who's seven and a woman who's 70. And the woman is the boarder in the house that the little girl's mother bought when the marriage was falling apart. And the little girl is alone because her father left her. And the woman upstairs is alone by choice and hates children. But 70 years apart, they're the same little girl. Mm -hmm. oh. and, and the way they cross each other's lives changes everything for both of them. It's not a mystery. It's, I have no idea what it is, okay? I have no idea what it is. But I love it. And I haven't even shown it to an agent yet. So you're the first person outside of my, my family who knows about it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I'll write whatever I can as long as I can keep writing. How do you spell this, the name of that last title? Um, magic. And Mrs. Archuleta, A-R-C-H-U-L-E-T-A, -E that's a Basque name. Ah, um, yes. And she, and she came from, when she was eight years old, she was hauled from the, from the cool rain of the Pyrenees to Phoenix, Arizona. 
and where she spoke no English. She went to school dressed in wool in the middle of the summer. The kids broke into laughter when she walked into the room, and she had to claw her way out of that childhood, and it did not leave her sympathetic. Um, and she's one of my favorite characters, but so is the little girl. So is, I, I, love, I love this book. I don't know whether it'll ever get published. There are obviously genre problems with it. Publishing is largely a matter of what genre, what, what shelf do you put this on in the store? Yeah. And this crosses genres, but I loved it and I'm glad I wrote it. Blah, blah, blah. Sorry to go on for so long. No, no, that. that's great. Um, you wouldn't consider self-publishing? You know, I actually, I did self-publish the first two juniors. Oh, did you? Yeah. Um, I went to my editor at William Morrow <laughs> and said, look, I've got an idea. Uh, it's like comic crime fiction and the hero's a burglar who's a private eye for crooks. And she said to me in all seriousness, Tim, I don't think the public associates you with comic crime fiction. And I said, Joan, I don't think 99% of the public knows I'm alive, but they, a lot of them like comic crime fiction. She said, well, I don't think we're interested. So I wrote it and I published it myself and immediately Soho bought it. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I, and I, I also, I self-published recently the seventh Simeon Grist book. Uh-huh. Um, something I wanted to write for a long time in which Simeon, the last copy of the last book in the Simeon Grist series gets pulped. And when that happens to you, there's a kind of a, <laughs> all of a sudden you're in a limbo with all the other unsuccessful literary private eyes and cops. Yeah. And you, your only contact with the world down here is when somebody opens one of your books in used book form, briefly you can look up through the book and you can follow the words that person is reading. And when they close the book, you're disconnected again. And you're sitting there in this the house you lived in forever. It's always got the same number of beers in the refrigerator. It's, it's just endlessly dull. And in the third chapter, he's watching one of his readers reading The Man With No Time, I think, and a pair of hands come around his throat. <laughs> and, and the book lands on the floor and the guy lands face down on top of the book. One of his murders, one of his readers has been murdered. He doesn't have that many readers. He's got to <laughs> figure out how to get down there and, 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 and solve it. And he does. And it's, it's a crazy book. It's called Pulped. I love it. I never showed it to a publisher. I just self-published it. Oh, that's wonderful. Look, we are having to come to an end now. So okay. where can readers find you online? I mean, do you like to engage with your readers? Absolutely. Um, first of all, I have a website, which is at timothyhelenann.com. On that is a button that says Contact Tim. Yeah. All they got to do is push that, and they can just send me their name and address or send me a letter. Uh, I have a newsletter right now that goes to about 9,000 people, all of whom got on that mailing list by doing that. Oh, fantastic. Um, and the newsletter – the newsletters are pretty funny, and uh, and there's only about four a year, so you're not being inundated. So that's that's the best way to get in touch with me. I also, in the end of every book, I talk about the music that I listened to when I wrote it, and I get hundreds of people writing me to suggest music to me, and I really appreciate that. Look, wonderful. We could talk all day, I'm sure, but um, lovely to have had the chance to have this time together. Thank you, and thank you for asking me. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. 
And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.